Hello, and welcome to PW Kids Cast, the children's book podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors and illustrators creating books for children and teens. I'm John Sellers, the children's reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Today, I'm speaking with Amy Sarig King, who readers properly know best as A.S. King, the author behind several acclaimed young adult novels, including the Prince Honor-winning Please Ignore Vera Dietz, as well as Ask the Passengers, Reality Boy, I Crawl Through It, and most recently, Still Life with Tornado. In 2017, King will release her first middle grade novel, Me and Marvin Gardens. It's being published at the end of January by Arthur A. Levine Books, an imprint of Scholastic, which is sponsoring this podcast. In Me and Marvin Gardens, King introduces sixth grader Obi Devlin, who's being confronted with unwelcome changes just about everywhere he looks. Housing developments are encroaching on the land that his family has lived on for decades. Boys at school, including his one-time best friend Tommy, are mocking him as a hippie and a weirdo. His nose won't stop bleeding and he's having trouble seeing eye-to-eye with his overworked parents, especially his father. But Obi's life takes an especially strange turn when he's cleaning up the creek that runs through the family property. It's there that he sees an unusual animal. It doesn't look like any animal he's ever seen before, and against all odds, it seems to live on a diet of plastic. Amy, thanks for speaking with me. Thanks for having me today, John. So your author bio at the back of this book is, is probably a weird place for us to start, but you mentioned in there that this is a book that took you 30 years to write, so I feel like we kind of have to start there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, well, I, I tried more than once to write different sorts of books about this experience in my life that I had, which is very like Obie's. My family farm was long gone by the time I was born, but um, I lived sort of on the back end of it on this little acre or so, you know, chunk that was surrounded by cornfields that were, that land was rented to farmers. And then little by little, my cornfield became an enormous housing development. And it hit me when I was, now Obi is 11 in the book, but for me, I was 14. It was a tough summer. My best friend had just moved because her father couldn't find work in the area. So um, she moved away. My closest sister in age um, moved away, went to college as well. So for me, it was an incredibly painful time. More importantly, watching the destruction of something so amazing, um, watching, you know, a a very old oak tree get cut down and all of the the trees that my mother planted with her grandfather get cut down. Those were the the early writings that I used to to write in my bedroom. um, And I still have them. Uh, So that's why I say it took it took me 30 years to write the book, because it was painful. And, you know, if you know my young adult work, you know that I do write about things that are painful and how people get through them. And so with this book, I wanted to visit myself, I guess, as as I think it was easier for me to make Obi that little bit younger and maybe that little bit more uh, inexperienced and maybe even to switch genders just so that it wasn't so much me. Uh, earlier, funnily enough, you'll, if you know the story, I tried to write it in a chapter book series, and it was written by a girl named Putrid Annie. And uh, Putrid Annie does make her appearance here in Me and Marvin Gardens as well. So it was just a very difficult topic to write about, hard time in my life. But it felt like, you know, again, this is obviously something that has stayed with you, but you felt that, that middle grade was maybe the best avenue. Do you think maybe partly because of just the age you were at the time when it was happening? Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, it it didn't. It never fit into young adult. It certainly didn't fit into adult. I never thought I'd write for younger readers, not so much because I didn't want to, just I didn't think I could. Of course, now I have a, kids that age in my house. Um, I mean, they're my kids. They're not someone else's kids. And so it seemed to fit. I guess I'm looking at the emotional longitude and latitude of my nine-year-old and of my then, I guess when I was writing this 12-year-old and just 
and they just seemed to it seemed a better avenue to tell the story. I think that if I told it in anything above middle grade that I I I don't know if I would have been able to capture it as much because the the innocence of losing something that was your childhood it fit better with a voice from a sixth grader than a ninth grader because it'd be a lot more angry, uh, a lot, lot more anger and a lot more, uh, I don't know, anger and swearing, I guess I'll say, John. Whereas with this, <laughs> it was more innocent. You know what I mean? It was an, because it, well, I was an innocent kid, even though I was 14. And to me, I felt so innocent. And these horrible guys were coming in and wrecking everything. So it seemed to fit. It was interesting. My, my, literally, my next question was was sort of about the idea of anger, and because I don't mean this in a negative way at all, but like it does feel like there is a lot of anger in this book. Maybe not that Obi is necessarily an angry kid, but just that there are, you know, maybe there's just anger behind it. You know, there, there, there's an, these enormous environmental problems that he's aware of. You know, there's neighborhoods changing in ways you know you're not happy about. People acting in ways that are hard to understand or are terrible. I mean, is it fair to say that there's a certain degree of just sort of anger at the world that sort of is kind of woven through this. I, I, I would, I would not deny that. I would think that Obi's definitely, I think when you're isolated, which Obi really is in the beginning because his best friend, Tommy has sort of dissed him for the new kids, the new suburban kids. And so I think between that and between, you know, the everyday cleanup of his Creek, uh, that Obi goes through, he's angry at the fact that nobody seems to care. Like nobody seems to care that, this was his childhood and it's getting ripped down. His mother does. And I think that's why he connects with her more. His father is more disconnected from it. Like, well, you know, world's moving forward. This is what's happening to the field. But between, you know, not having anyone to turn to and all that, I do think, yeah, I think he's angry. And I think he's angry with the world that he's inherited. Um, even if it's just, you know, plastic bags and, and cigarette butts in his Creek, you know, it's, it just seems like he's angry at why would someone throw this in the Creek? This makes no sense. The same as when I see, litter on the street. I'm like, why would someone just throw a bag of McDonald's food out of their car? Like that, couldn't they just wait till they get home? You know? So it is sort of um, a frustration, I think more. Um, but he's certainly angry and, and certainly sad, no doubt, in the beginning of the book, for sure. Yeah, I think at one point he does even mention something about, you know, there are certain people who, people who care and people who don't care. And I'm, you know, this is clearly who I am. Yeah. But, you know, this is also not a hopeless book. Um, and there's even a line toward the end that says, you know, there had to be hope. Was it important to you that even as Obi is thinking about everything from the Pacific garbage patch to the way that girls at his school are being treated, that there is this sense that you can actually do something about some of this stuff? I think that's definitely, um, it's a big deal. Um, Ms. G in the book, which is, uh, who is Obi's science teacher, she was real. Um, she actually still is real. For me, she was real. She really made me feel that hope because, I mean, she collected those pull tabs off of soda cans back in, I would say, the late 70s before any of us had recycling bins. You know, no one was even thinking about that sort of thing. So to me, when I see what she did, even though she wasn't really bringing it, she never, how do I say this? She, it wasn't that she was concentrating on ecology. She wasn't concentrating on the waste and how we threw things away. She was more concentrating on what did 1 million look like. But when she was done, she donated, you know, the, the recycling money to, you know, an environmental cause. So yeah, I think there is hope. I think everybody has to have it. Otherwise we can't move forward. And for him, I mean, because it was earth month in science class. So that, you know, this was the focus of Miss G's teachings during that month and the focus of what we see as his school life. To have that connected with something like Marvin Gardens, his his mysterious animal, have that all happen at the same time, 
I think he could see that there was hope for all sorts of things, hope for his friendships and his future, and that Tommy wasn't the only friend he was ever going to meet. Obviously, Annie helped with that, too. And, yeah, I think hope hope, hope has to weave its way through any story. I mean, life, you got to have hope. Otherwise, what you got, you're hopeless. It's, you know, there's nothing left. And, I mean, when I looked at the, when I researched, <laughs> when I researched pollution, I learned some really uncomfortable facts and it really changed me as a human being in all sorts of ways, not just the recycling. Um, it brought me closer to a lot of things that I had sort of stepped away from, I guess. Uh, like I adopted a kitten. I mean, that sounds like the, the silliest correlation, but in actual fact, I had left my farm 11 years before and just like done with animals. And then I'm like, why am I done with animals? <laughs> I, want a, I want an animal again. I want a pet. So hope is, yeah, that's, that's, that's what hope is. If, you can, if I could personify hope, I'd say kitten, a big, cute kitten face. <laughs> Speaking of animals, we should definitely talk more about Marvin Gardens, which is what Obi names the, the creature that he discovers. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how the idea of this animal took shape for you? Well, that idea came straight from my editor. That was sort of the project at hand. And that, that was the beginning. She said, I, I want you to write a book about an animal that eats plastic. And so I said, okay, anything else? And, and Cheryl said, no, go for it from there. Use your imagination. And so that's where it was interesting that that story about my cornfield finally came out. But more importantly, I mean, I couldn't figure out anything. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a nature girl, so I've seen a lot of animals in the wild, and I couldn't figure out what he would look like or what he would be like. So I kind of allowed myself to explore what an animal that eats plastic would look like, and I figured he would look kind of gross. And, you know, there are plenty of animals that look gross, but we love them. Um, I just saw a great thing the other day on the internet about how great possums are, possums are, and how possums eat, what was it, something like 5,000 ticks in a year or something? That could be a wrong statistic. But either way, Marvin just sort of formed himself. I think that I didn't know they were going to be friends. I mean, we didn't talk about that. All, all Cheryl and I spoke about was just an animal that eats plastic. So it could have been a story set anywhere about any anybody, but I ended up putting Obi into it. You know, I enjoyed writing him because, again, it brought me closer to sort of trying to figure out how to make an animal likable after not having had a, an animal in 11 years and before that having farmed and had plenty of animals. But it was really nice to kind of explore again how how relaxed an animal can make you feel a friend, a pet. Uh, he's not a pet. He's a wild animal, but he's his friend. So he, he can sit with him and, and wag his tail and then he can, you know, Obi can rub his slimy belly kind of a thing. But the way my kitten kind of saved me from a, a sad winter, Marvin saved Obi from, you know, during a very sad time. But I enjoyed, I enjoyed writing him and I enjoyed the sort of, journey he took me on because I don't really, I don't plot my books. I don't um, outline. So he took me on the journey, both the Marvin and Obi. Um, well, you know, when you can comb over satellite images of earth online and even drill down to see individual blocks and homes on Google street view, it, you know, it's, it's sometimes easy to feel like there's nothing left to, to explore or discover, but you know, with Obi and Marvin gardens and their relationship, were you hoping to maybe offer a little reminder that there's still so much that is, you know, undiscovered and unknown out there? Absolutely. And that was some of the more fascinating stuff I was reading while I was researching is how many areas um, under the ocean have not been, you know, even explored yet. It's amazing how many insects and other types of animals haven't really been discovered yet. Um, they are still, 
in jungles and in places where people haven't discovered them. Yeah, it is pretty cool if you think about it, that we've never been to the deepest parts of the ocean. Wonder what's down there. Mm-hmm. Well, on a different topic, you know, several of your recent books, uh, especially Still Life with Tornado and Gloria O'Brien's History of the Future, feel very rooted in the idea of exploring the way the past connects to the present and connects to the future. Why do you think that's something that you've wound up circling back to in your fiction, including this book? Mm, I think it's because it's a, it's a major theme of life. I'm at that time of life where I'm cycling through my childhood again. It's not something for the faint-hearted. So I think that the decisions that my ancestors made um, affect me. You know, you read articles about even DNA changing based on what your grandparents and your parents endured, things like this, that we are actually the result of the experiences of our ancestors. It's pretty cool and also kind of scary. Um, So I think that's probably why I'm obsessed with that. Just generally, I like the idea that that my parents could break a cycle from their parents and that I can then do better even than them and break another cycle. And hopefully eventually we can end up with, you know, I don't know, a world full of really nice people. I mean, I know that's a, that's a crazy, you know, I'm a dreamer sort of statement, but it'd be really great to be able to break all these cycles, but I don't think we can do it unless we start looking at it. And if we don't look at it and take it seriously, then we're never going to get anywhere. So, um, you know, we're looking at a political season now where, you know, most of the talk is the same talk we've always heard. And I haven't heard one person talk about teens with depression or middle schoolers with anxiety. And these are the sorts of things we actually have to talk about um, and the problems and talking about problems instead of rolling our eyes and going, yeah, get over it. It's drama. It's not drama. These are real problems that kids of all ages are facing. And I think that the more we take them seriously, the better ancestors they'll be to, to their descendants, if that makes sense. Well, so that idea of you know the past and how it connects to the present is certainly present in this book too. And there, there's chapters you've included that jump back a hundred years to look at Obi's great grandfather and the gradual loss of, of his land. Um, were those chapters uh, part of this book from an early stage? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I tend to do that. I can't really write a linear story to save my life, and if I do, I interrupt myself. It's just so the linear. I don't know if it's me needing the um, connection or what, but with this book, it was particularly important. Because I wanted Obi to be able to know why essentially the cornfield is not theirs anymore. That that land isn't theirs anymore, and there's a reason. And it's something. It's a legacy that's been passed down through the generations. So the fact that his great grandfather basically essentially drank the land, not only connected to my experience, which is exactly why we lost the land, except it was my grandfather, but it also it adds to that bitterness, that anger that might be there, that that sort of why, like, why couldn't this person leave me something wonderful? Why was I handed a, you know, a creek full of plastic? Um, This is all I, you know, this is all we get. And I think that that's something that as adults, we really need to think about. We, We need to think about this. How are we really going to hand this planet over to the next generation? And I know it sounds really, you know, I know people are going to say, oh, she's crazy. She's one of those hippies. But in actual fact, it's not getting better. It's getting worse. Uh, and we do need to figure out what to do. It's some of it's out of our hands because it's in the hands of politicians and businesses and all that and other countries, which we can't control. But in the case of in our families, you know, what, what pollution are we handing down? What pollution are we giving to our children when it comes to our, our habits and our lifestyles? So it was important for me to dig into that. Plus, uh, it was really cool to look back at like 100 years ago and how many things weren't there, like light switches, things like that. That was that was fun to look at, too. 
Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. I don't know if this was planned or just something that kind of bubbled up as a result, but there's such an interesting little harmonizing that goes on between the idea of Obi's great-grandfather sort of drinking the land or drinking the, the dirt, and then you have Marvin Gardens, who is literally eating plastic, and just a, such a funny little thing there. Yeah, that was that was kind of accidentally intentional, if that makes sense. <laughs> the way I write, that's what we have. We have a lot of accidental intentions. Strange, but true. As we discussed, Obi has a lot of things kind of coming at him, as do his classmates, but I was interested that, especially given that this is a middle grade book, that you actually sort of work a sort of discussion of consent into it, really, when it comes to the, you know, how Puget Anne is being treated at school and this whole kind of kissing, not really a contest, but this, you know, kissing challenge that some of the boys are embarking on. Was that another important kind of angle you wanted to explore in the book, too? And, well, like I said, I don't really plan the books. They come at me. So when that happened, I thought, wow, that's interesting. Uh, what will I do with that? And then it brought me to the two times that uh, I've experienced this with my daughters, uh, that they have been run up to and kissed by a boy. And then everybody just goes, oh, well, you know, boys will be boys. And we know what that leads to. Uh, well, I'm not going to get into that, but we do know what that leads to. And it leads to the culture we have now. So, you know, yeah, I definitely wanted to handle that as what it was. And I liked that Obi could see it that way because he was in a place where he himself felt victimized by everybody from his his friend Tommy who had, you know, left him behind to those houses. I mean, I felt that he was, he felt very victimized by those houses. No one asked him <laughs> if they could wreck his cornfield. I know it's none of his business and he's just a kid, but... Yeah, I thought that, that building that in was, was important. And when it happened, I thought, well, what am I going to do with this? And I thought, well, I think I'll see what happens. You know, I'll, I'll see if I can have a discussion at that in that age group, you know, at, at the lunch table and how the kids were all like, oh, she made too much of a big deal out of it. I'd be happy if I was her. She's putrid and all this stuff. Well, in actual fact, that's the exact same thing we say to victims who are, you know, <laughs> 40 and 60 and 20 and there's no difference um so i do think that the discussion should start early absolutely your your writing your fiction seems to often come at life from a bit of a slant you know whether it's uh, the invisible helicopter in uh, i crawl through it or the fantasy world of of jerry's day in reality boy or you know a never seen before creature like in this book i'm just curious how you think of it or your of your approach i mean it doesn't feel necessarily like science fiction per se or magical realism even like how do you think of your approach if you think of it in a specific way at all if I was to put a name on it, I, I can't figure it out because I believe, because I'm such a fan of magic realism, I, I really believe it, it's a cultural thing. I, I, I don't come from that culture. So I guess we would call it surrealist, sometimes fantastical versus fantasy. I'm not really sure what we'd call it. I, how I come about it is purely organically, which sounds very sign of, kind of woo-woo, but um, it just shows up. If I trust my character enough, he or she will take me on the journey. And I will write down what they tell me to write down. And then afterwards, I'll fix it up to make it look like a book and, you know, and make sure that it works. But, um, you know, I don't really see the world the way a lot of people do. <laughs> I'm, I'm nearing 50 and I'm realizing day by day that it's like, yeah, I really have always been like this. I've always been a bit of a weirdo. Um, I've always seen things from a strange angle anyway. I dream a lot. As someone who appreciates the Surrealists, I can definitely say that my dreams come into my books a lot more than, uh, I shouldn't say that, a lot more than they should, but a lot more than I ever thought they would. So maybe it's just the way I think. It's the dreams I've had since I was a kid. My recurring dreams started as early as three and four years old that I remember, and they recurred all the way up until I still have recurring dreams, they're just new ones. So I think maybe the, my fa- the fact that I'm open to that, I guess. I'm, in fact, I think about my dreams. I don't just forget them. I walk through the day and think, I wonder what that meant. 
So I don't know if that's why I see the world that way, but I definitely see it from a funny angle. Always did. Going back to this being, again, your first book uh, for this age reader, did the coming together of it feel any different than your young adult books? Were there any extra layers of things that were on your mind, or did it really sort of emerge a lot of the way your previous ones had as well? It emerged the same way, but I had to kick it out a little more. It definitely didn't come to me as easily as a young adult book um, or any of my young adult books had. Now, that's not to say the other ones were easy. They were not. Some really weren't, and some were miraculous. But um, it was definitely different. Um, It was very helpful to have middle graders in my house at the time and and to be uh, reading books with them, you know, that were middle grade. I still can't tell if it fits or not. You know, it's like one of those things you buy. You're like, you buy a, a new flannel shirt. You're like, I'm not so sure. I don't know if I look good in red or not. You know, I can't tell. I enjoyed writing it. That's for sure. And I enjoyed the journey. So it did. The book itself unfolded the same way um, as my previous, as my young adult work. But it was still, I felt, I guess I felt I had to hold back that little bit because this boy is 11. He's not 17. And there is a difference. Um, and so it was hard for me to tap into that. It's a little easier for me to tap into a 17 year old because there's not a huge difference between the way I thought as a 17 year old and the way I think as a 47 year old, but 11's that little bit more innocent. And I guess I, I, it was nice to explore it again, but it was a little difficult to tap in. So, you know, this book is not out for a few months yet, and I know you have uh, Still Life with Tornado out basically now-ish. Uh, if it's not too horrible to ask, uh, what else is on the horizon for you? Are there other things you're you're in the midst of working on? That is a great question, John. I have no idea. Uh, I've had... I've had an interesting year, so I'm I'm not really sure. I can definitely tell you there'll be another young adult book soon enough. Um, it probably won't be next year, but it will be kind of the same old A.S. King Fair, different um, than my other books, but yet surrealist in some way. But that is the vaguest I've ever been about anything. Um, I think it has something to do with potatoes. That's all I know, John. That's I have no other ideas at the moment other than it's potatoes, and I'm trusting my character to tell me why. <laughs> because if you ever looked up potato dishes on Wikipedia, it's just a dead end. That's all I'm going to say. And pierogies are not in there, which I think is just a crime, but we're not going to get into that. And then I've been, I've been working on an adult book, a collaboration, which I'll just leave it at that. That'll be a while, but... I started out in adult. I started out in science fiction. I started out, you know, in those places. I love short stories and I've been writing poems. So I have no idea at the moment, which I have never been able to say. So you caught me in a kind of a strange whirlwind at that one. But yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. We'll have to see. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye out regardless. And um, in the meantime, congratulations again on, on this book. And thank you for speaking with me. Oh, thanks so much. And I really appreciate it. This is this was fun. Thank you. Once again, I've been speaking with Amy Sarah King, whose middle grade novel, Me and Marvin Gardens, arrives in January from Arthur A. Levine Books. Thank you for listening to PW KidsCast. 